We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, here's the story. The Department of Justice, Garrick Marland, is silent on abortion protests at Supreme Court justices' homes, despite, get this one, a federal law that prohibits this stuff from happening. It's illegal. And the Department of Justice and our Attorney General does nothing. Are we a nation of laws, or are we a nation of men? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning, and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. As I said in the introduction, the topic for this morning is the protests that are taking place outside of the Supreme Court justices' homes. As you know, uh, abortion proponents, pro-abortion folks, are rallying outside of the six conservative United States Supreme Court justices' houses and protesting, picketing, hollering, screaming, trying to intimidate these particular justices into changing their mind and changing course, trying to exercise public influence and pressure on these judges to influence their decisions on justice. So the question for the morning is, is this right? Is it legal? Are there laws that actually prohibit these people from doing this? And more specifically, I'm going to go all the way back to our second president in the United States, and that's John Adams. And his claim, his statement that the United States, our constitutional republic, must be, must be a nation of laws and not of men. One more time on that quote. We must be a nation of laws and not of men. Now, what did John Adams mean when he said that? And is Garrick Marlin honoring that principle? That principle that is a cornerstone to the very founding of our nation, the premise upon which our legal system is built and our freedoms are grounded. We must be a nation of laws, not a nation of men. John Adams told us this, and actually George Washington, George Washington modeled it. He modeled it to to the amazement of King George himself, that George Washington would actually, actually Honor the law rather than seek power. Honor a system of laws that was above him as a man and give over his power to that system of laws because he considered it more important than his own political aspirations or his own personal quest for power. We must be a nation of laws, not of men. And if we reverse the equation and become a nation of men that ignores the law, then we are a nation gone under, to quote Ronald Reagan. Loosely, I might add there. Ronald Reagan once said that if we forget that we are a nation grounded in God and his natural law, his principles, the ideals that are revealed to us by Scripture, the Ten Commandments on through to the New Testament, if we forget that we are one nation under God, and his natural law, and his principles, and his rule, and his way, if we forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone 
under. That's Ronald Reagan. So as we get ready for the break, I want you to be thinking about this. Should the Department of Justice be enforcing the law? If we have laws that are on the books, if we have official codified law that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, has pledged by virtue of his oath to office to defend and protect and not compromise, is he now obligated to do his job or are his personal feelings about a given situation, are his personal feelings enough to trump the law that is written in ink before him? I hope you understand that the answer to this question is critical to your freedom. Because if anybody can take an oath to office and then say, well, I didn't really mean it because I don't feel good about some of the laws that were on the books when I pledged that I would honor and defend those laws, then we are no longer a nation that has any laws to protect anyone. We're nothing but a nation of men who will exercise their opinions and their feelings and their quest for power. And they'll exercise those opinions and feelings in such a way that takes away your personal liberties and freedoms. So let's take a break. And when I get back, I'm going to share this story with you about how Garrick Merlin, the Department of Justice, is refusing is refusing to even comment, to even say anything about these protests that are illegal. We do have written law that says so. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. So before I share this story about Garrick Marlin's refusal to even comment on these protests that are taking place outside of the United States Supreme Court justices' homes, protests that are in violation of written law. Before I get into sharing that story with you, I want to give you some context. Uh, In my career in the academy, in the ivory tower, I spent, oh, at least half of my career in student development. Now, if you know academic uh, structure and hierarchy and organizational charts, you'll know that student development is run by the Vice President for Student Affairs, or another title that's given to that individual is the Dean of Students. Well, that was my role for a number of years before I assumed a college presidency. I was the Dean of Students. I was the Vice President for Student Development, or Student Affairs, as it's known at some institutions. So what's my point here? Well, part of my job description as a dean of students, as a vice president for student development and student affairs, was to be the chief disciplinarian of the campus. The dean of students is the guy who enforces the rules of the college or university. That was my job. And when you have several hundred, if not several thousand, 18 to 21-year-olds under your charge, you can imagine that there will be violations of some of the community standards, some of the rules that are on the books. There will be violations of a statement that all of the students have signed, and that statement is that I agree to honor and abide by the code of conduct of this given institution. Now, I always served Christian institutions, and those Christian institutions had, guess what, a a definition, a clear written definition of Christian community. And there were positive components of that honor code of that Christian community, that you would be loving and patient and kind to your neighbor. You would be considerate. You would engage in positive Christ-like behavior. 
And you signed a, a code of conduct when you enrolled in the institution. You signed it of your own volition. Nobody forced you to enroll. You joined this community voluntarily, and you signed a document that said, I agree with these principles and these rules and these expectations of conduct, and I will abide by them. I will honor them. Every student did that. They were told that before they enrolled, and their parents were told, here, here are the rules. Here's the statement. Here's the community standards. Here are the community standards. Well, there were also negative statements within the community standards. For example, we had rules against uh, alcohol use. We had rules against gossip. We had rules against violence. We had rules against unbiblical uh, sexual activity. And who in their right mind would expect us not to have those rules? Again, it's a Christian college. It's a Christian university. People pay good money to send their kids or to enroll themselves in these institutions under the expectation that these colleges are different than the secular institution down the road. I'm a graduate of Michigan State University and Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Michigan State and Michigan, Bowling Green, obviously, in Ohio. And neither one of these institutions had those rules about Christian conduct. They didn't care about alcohol consumption. They didn't care about drug use, per se, as long as it was legal. They didn't care about any sexual activity, quite frankly, as long as it was consensual. So it's a completely different community at these state universities that I have degrees from versus these Christian colleges that I served as dean of students of. All right, you get my point? Uh, by definition, by law, if you will, if you want to use that language, the Christian community was different than the secular community. We had law. We had a code of conduct. We had an honor code, and that statement, that pledge, was signed by the students to behave accordingly. My job was to enforce those rules. Well, here's the way I did it. I expected you to be a man or woman of your word, and if you violated it, there were consequences. And I never showed favoritism to a single student. I didn't care what your name was. I didn't care if you came from the lowliest of the lowliest or if you came from the chairman of the board's family. I didn't care if you were the chairman of the board's son. I didn't care if you were the president's son. If you violated the community code, then you would suffer the consequences accordingly, just like everybody else. And the result of this was every student knew they were going to be treated the same, and they would be treated fairly. I never turned a blind eye to anyone. If you broke the rules, then you suffered a predictable consequence. Everyone. That was my job, because justice demanded it. And if I started ignoring certain offenses because of who the people were, or because of my feelings or my opinions on the rule in the first place, or because I resonated with one group of students or one individual more so than I resonated and agreed with or had an affinity for another student or a group of students, then you can see what I'm saying. You know where I'm going right now. Justice is lost because, again, Lady Justice is lifting the blindfold and peeking and looking around and saying, well, I'm not going to administer the same consequences to that guy as I would have to that guy because I like this particular person. I, I agree with him, quite frankly. I agree with his objections, and therefore I'm just not going to enforce the rules for him. But I sure will for those other folks. Is this fair? Well, obviously it's not fair. And therefore I did my job 
differently. I administered justice to everyone. Didn't care who you were or what group you were part of. If you were an athlete, you got the same punishment as a non-athlete. If you were a non-athlete, you got the same punishment as everyone else. I didn't care if you were the all-star running back and it was homecoming weekend. If you broke the rules before the game, you sat down. You did not play, okay? You received probation, suspension, or even dismissal in a very fair and predictable way. All right, so I've spent some time giving you that context. What's the point? Don't you think our Department of Justice should function the same way? Don't you think our Attorney General should have the same attitude? Well, apparently not. They don't think that they should be administering justice in a predictable and fair way to individuals regardless of their political affiliation and regardless of whether or not uh, Garrick Marlin or the DOGA or the President of the United States or anybody agrees or disagrees with a particular individual or group. Now, apparently they don't agree with this philosophy. Take, for example, these protests outside Supreme Court justices' houses. There have been no arrests of abortion activists, despite the fact that there's a law. There is a law. There is a code of conduct. There's an honor code. There's written documentation. There is a law. It's codified into our legislative statutes. Okay, there's a law that Garrick Marlin has pledged to defend, and he's not doing so. This is a this is a problem. This should cause you great concern. All right, here's here are the facts. You've got the liberal media out there who remember these are the folks that r- repeatedly criticized parents for protesting at their local school boards. Uh, they oh you if you're a parent, you went to a school board meeting and you raised a fuss. You're you're a terrorist. They actually started treating you that way, and so did Garrick Marlin. He actually started issuing investigations into parents who were doing nothing other than showing up at a school board meeting and saying, I don't like this stuff. I don't like what you're teaching my kid. I don't like critical theory. It's teaching my son and daughter to be racist in their thinking. I don't like the way you're compromising Martin Luther King Jr.'s ideals of judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of the skin. You're teaching my kids to do the exact opposite in our classrooms that I'm paying for, and I don't like the sexual nihilism that's pervasive across the curriculum. Stop teaching my son that he can be a girl, and stop letting boys in my girl's restroom and shower and locker room. This is bad stuff. Well, if you went to a school board meeting and said that, you were all of the sudden labeled a terrorist, and the Department of Justice via Garrick Marlin's directive, was starting to investigate you, all right? So keep in mind that that's the context of the way protesters have been treated recently. Well, let's go to the stuff that's going on outside our Supreme Court justices' homes right now. The Department of Justice is remaining silent on all of this. They're saying nothing, zero. Not only are they not taking action, they're not even opening their mouth. Garrick Marlin, as the leader, as the attorney general, is doing nothing. You've got protests by abortion activists outside conservative Supreme Court justices' homes. And there's a federal law that makes it illegal to do this. I'm going to quote it. It makes makes it illegal. It makes it illegal to attempt to influence federal officials and the outcome 
of a court case. Did you know that? I'm going to say that again. We have a federal law that makes it illegal to attempt to influence federal officials and the outcome of a court case. Here's what federal U.S. Code 1507-1507 says. It says this, that any individual who pickets or parades with the intent of interfering with, obstructing, or impeding the administration of justice, or with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, or court officer near a U.S. court or, listen to this, near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness, or court officer will be fined or imprisoned not more than one year or both. Close quote. Did you hear that? Did you know that that was law? Does Garrick Marlin know that it's law? Does our Attorney General, Garrick Marlin, know that this is law? Yes, he does. He knows this is law. If he doesn't, he's incredibly incompetent and poorly informed. So let's just, for the sake of argument, admit that Garrick Marlin knows that U.S. Code 1507 exists and that it says, and I repeat, that any individual who pickets or parades with the intent of interfering with, obstructing, or impeding the administration of justice, or with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, or court officer near a U.S. court or near a building or residence occupied or used by such a judge, juror, witness, or court officer will be fined or imprisoned not more than one year or both. Close quote. Now, why in the world is Garrick Marlin not taking this seriously? I mean, it, it, what's taking place outside the building or residence occupied or used by such a judge? Okay, it's right there in the code. The building or residence occupied or used by such a judge. They're picketing outside the residences of the conservative judges. And what is their intent? to obstruct or interfere or impede the administration of justice with the intent of influencing that judge. That's the language in the law. The intent of influencing any judge. I'll say it one more time. The law said that if you're interfering or obstructing or impeding the administration of justice with the intent of influencing a judge, okay, and if you're doing so near a building or a residence occupied by that judge, you're guilty of breaking federal law, and you can be put in prison for doing so. And Merrick Garland has not even issued a public statement addressing the protests. He hasn't even issued a public statement. By the way, if I butchered his name earlier, I can't even remember if I reversed it. Sometimes I know people say uh, Garrick Marlin rather than Merrick Garland. I think I said it right earlier. Uh, it's Merrick Garland, the Attorney General. Obviously, I know that. Um, and I know you know that, too. So here we have the Department of Justice, and it won't even respond. It won't even issue a statement. And Garland's silence is the reason why these protesters have not been arrested. He is not administering justice. He's not enforcing the rules. He's not enforcing the law. Fairly equitably, predictably. He's playing favorites. He lied in his oath of office. He said he would do otherwise, and he's not. You know, there's a uh, Fox News contributor by the name of Andy McCarthy. 
And he has said this, the Biden's Department of Justice is being silent on this for the same reason as the White House. They're elevating their political interests over their constitutional duty to to execute the laws faithfully. Say it one more time. They're elevating their political interests over their constitutional duty to execute the laws faithfully. In other words, they're violating their oath of office. I've said that several times. Um, Months ago, months ago, as I said earlier in the show, Garland dispatched the FBI to investigate parents who were protesting the inclusion of racist and anti-American materials in our school's curricula. Garland claimed that the Justice Department had an interest in protecting teachers and school administrators. Now, not only was that claim untrue, because it was based on the assumption that the schools were under siege from these violent parents, and they were not. There's no evidence whatsoever of that. Angry parents, yes. Uh, Unruly, perhaps, in a school board meeting or two. Unruly, uh, as defined by maybe violating the time frame for which they were given to speak. Um, Maybe raising their voice. But you've seen nothing, nothing beyond that. Nobody was violent. Nobody tried to hit anybody. It was just a very exasperated parent, a mom or dad, that said, stop. Stop abusing my kids. I'm paying for this. These are my tax dollars. This is my school. It's not yours. It's ours. And the children are mine, not yours. It's my son, my daughter, and I don't want you, I don't want you teaching them this stuff. That's what was going on. And Marland, Garrick Marland, dispatches the FBI to investigate this. But he does nothing when there's a direct, a direct threat to the justices of the Supreme Court. To the point where some of the justices have actually had to leave their homes and go elsewhere in hiding. Why? Because these people are trying to influence and impede and obstruct the exercise of justice, the enforcement of law. Garrick Marlin doesn't do anything. All right, in the last couple minutes, I want to share with you why this matters. If you go back to the founding of our country, as I said at the beginning of this show, you have John Adams, who said that we must be a nation of laws and not of men. He was grounding that not only, not, not only in his opinion and his own personal views, but he was grounding it, as all of our founding fathers always did, in the wisdom of the ages. They read Locke and Hume and Montesquieu. They read Plato and Aristotle. These guys were very bright and very well-educated. They read the Old Testament, they read the New Testament, as I've said a dozen times on this show. The writings of Moses, Deuteronomy more specifically, are cited more often in our founding seminal documents in the founding era of the United States than any of the other classic authors combined. And that's a fact. There's research out there where we know that that is true. Just as a cumulative fact, there are more citations of Deuteronomy and Moses than any other writer, any other book, than all the other classics, which would include Locke and Hobbes and Hume and Montesquieu, Aristotle, Plato, all of them combined, don't equal the writings of Moses. Well, our founding fathers wrote about Moses because they had read Moses and Deuteronomy. They wrote about Aristotle and Plato because they had read them. 
they they knew what they were talking about. So when John Adams says that we are a nation of laws, not of men, what's he talking about? Well, it's possible that he goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who said this, it is more proper that law should govern than any one of the citizens. One more time, it's more proper that law should govern than any one of the citizens. And then he goes on and he says this, upon the same principle, some particular persons should be appointed to be only guardians and servants of the laws. And then he went on to explain that absolute power is unnatural and harmful because those who hold such power are likely to abuse it by depriving other people of their rights. Aristotle again. Passions influence those who are in power. Law is reason without desire. One more time on that. Again, Aristotle. Passions influence those who are in power. Law is reason without desire. So law is reasonable. It doesn't have the desire of passion. It doesn't have the emotion that comes with passion and desire. Law is rational, and it should be administered rationally, without emotion and without favoritism. This principle that I'm describing right now from Aristotle is known as the rule of law. And America's founders knew it, and they knew it was essential to a constitutional republic. So when John Adams says that we are a nation of laws and not of men, he's, he's saying that for a reason. He's grounding the philosophy of our constitutional republic, of the United States of America. He, he's grounding the defense of uh, the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence. He's grounding all of those things in this philosophical, theological, ontological, epistemological assumption that we must honor laws and we can't give ourselves over to the passions and the power of men. Does that make sense? We are a nation of laws. We are not a nation of men. George Washington, as I said, had enormous power, but he understood that the rule of law needed to be respected, and that's why at the end of the Revolutionary War, he gave up all power. He resigned his commission, and he walked away. He refused to become king. He refused. And in fact, when he surrendered his commission, it was unprecedented in the history of man. It established that the United States would be a civilian government, a Republican government. It wouldn't be run by the military or by a king. Washington stated, having now finished the work assigned to me, I retire with great, with great ambition and affection. I look forward to spending my life under my vine and under my fig tree, and I shall not be afraid. He wanted his freedom. It's said that King George III uh, re- <laughs> reportedly commented, that if Washington does this, if he really surrenders his power, as I've heard he intends to, he will be the greatest man in the world, quote-unquote, because King George understood that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So in summary, George Washington recognized we we must be a nation of laws and not of men. John Adams then said it very clearly, we are a nation of laws and not of men, and now we have Merrick Garland and our administration refusing to even honor the law and they're violating their oath of office and therefore we're going to have chaos in the streets. That's not justice, people. That's nothing but a quest for power. I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion.